Committee will come to order. Without objection, the chair is authorized to declare a recess of the committee at any time. Without objection, all members will have five legislative days within which to submit extraneous materials for the, to the chair for inclusion in the record. I want to thank our great witnesses today for being with us, and I now recognize myself to give an opening statement. Today's hearing is entitled Regulatory Whiplash, examining the impact of the FSOC's ever-changing designation framework on innovation. We're holding this hearing after the FSOC finalized its uh, revised guidance for non-bank financial company designations in November. The new guidance is intended to enhance protections for our financial system, but in practice, this revision paves the path for potential abuse and unintended consequences and raises serious questions about whether FSOC is taking the best approach to actually address systemic risk. For example, it removes the requirement for FSOC to conduct cost-benefit analysis when evaluating an entity's potential to pose systemic risk under a Section 113 designation. Even the district court in the case MetLife versus FSOC, which considered the legality of MetLife's prior designation as a systemically important institution, stated that the refusal to consider costs of the designation to MetLife was arbitrary and capricious. The revised guidance flies in the face of the district court's opinion and the Supreme Court precedent underpinning that decision. Not only that, but the new guidance also rejects the approach taken under the prior administration to implement a more appropriate designation process, which includes an activities first approach and a commitment to work with the primary regulator. I think what's really damaging too is the consistent constant whiplash every time that we have a change in the occupant at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Just this morning in the Capital Markets Subcommittee, we dealt with precisely that same issue on the Department of Labor fiduciary rule. I remind uh, all of us uh, that uh, on our third designation framework in three administrations now. And though the new guidance states that it aims to establish a durable process, it seems that this pattern of three changes in three administrations is anything but. In this Congress, our committee has scrutinized the repeated and proactive efforts by certain Biden financial regulators to take aggressive agency actions against disfavored industries through guidance, rulemaking, supervision, and enforcement. And I would argue that FSOC, which is mostly comprised of those same regulators, is taking a similarly mistaken approach with its revised guidance for designations. Let's look at the 2023 annual report. FSOC considering digital assets as a priority. And as recently as October 2022, FSOC recommended that Congress pass legislation to establish a comprehensive framework for stable coins and, and that a new federal regulatory authority should be provided over spot markets for digital assets that are not considered securities. Well, look, that's what this committee has been working on since this Congress, the 118th Congress, was initiated. This subcommittee and our full committee have done precisely that. We've crafted a regulatory framework for digital assets, and we've crafted a regulatory regime for stable coins. We don't need uh, FSOC to be involved in that. What they need to do is support our legislative effort. And I'm proud in both those uh, efforts, both on stable coins and the regulatory framework, that we had a very strong bipartisan effort working with both Democrats and Republicans to craft 
that approach. We move these bills out of committee, and we look forward to continuing the work with our colleagues on the Hill and the administration to move that legislation forward. FSOC needs to tread very carefully when entertaining the idea of sidestepping Congress and congressional intent. FSOC designations here, in my view, are not the proper approach a legislative fix is. Uh, it's clear some rogue rev regulators uh, threaten consumer protections in the digital asset market as much as any bad actor. I think we just uh, witnessed uh, uh, the latest in Washington's technological vulnerabilities yesterday and a real low point for the SEC. Chairman McHenry, Subcommittee Chair, Chairman Wagner, Hazanga, and myself will be sending a letter to Chair Gensler today to start the process of getting to the bottom of how it happened that the SEC Twitter account was hacked and investors were misled yesterday uh, on the subject of an ETF being approved for uh, digital assets in Bitcoin. With that, uh, and uh, I will add, uh, should we insert this record in the letter? Okay, do that later. Let me recognize the ranking member for his opening comments. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'd also like to welcome our witnesses. Thank you for your willingness to support the subcommittee's work. Let us first remember that the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or FSOC, was originally established in 2010 in the aftermath of a global financial crisis that cost the American people and the U.S. economy more than $20 trillion. I served on the committee, on this committee, uh, when we developed and enacted the landmark Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act in response to the destabilizing impact of reckless financial practices undertaken by AIG and other interconnected non-bank entities, Congress specifically empowered FSOC with the authority to designate non-bank financial institutions as systemically important only when warranted. In the interest of mitigating risk to our financial system, designated entities are subject to Federal Reserve regulation and supervision. For the sake of maximum transparency and accountability, Dodd-Frank also contemplated that every non-bank financial company is unique in its own way and in the context of risk evaluation. That is precisely why the law sets forth multiple factors that FSOC must consider in determining whether a particular institution is systemically important. These factors include the extent of leverage and off-balance sheet exposures and the degree to which a company is already subject to regulation. To date, FSOC has only designated four non-bank entities as systemically important financial institutions, or SIFIs. Currently, there are none that hold that designation. Following a series of misguided efforts to undermine its designation authority during the Trump administration, the Council recently approved an interpretive guidance and analytical framework that seeks to build upon the systemic risk oversight goals that are set forth in Dodd-Frank. Importantly, FSOC has finalized these proposals and amid the continued prevalence of shadow banking. The escalating migration of core banking activities to non-bank financial companies that fall outside the scope of traditional bank regulation, as recently reported by the Financial Stability Board, the value of total global financial assets held by non-bank financial intermediaries currently stands at over $461.2 trillion, 
or 47.2% of all global financial assets. Cryptocurrency firms also carry the potential to present significant risks to financial stability. Over the past couple of years, we've witnessed the catastrophic collapse of FTX, the violation of federal anti-money laundering and sanctions laws by Binance, and legal and operational issues facing several other crypto companies, just to name a few. Moreover, the recent failures of Silicon Valley, Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and Silvergate Bank have given rise to serious concerns regarding the cascading impact of crypto market volatility on the traditional financial sector. And just last month, FSOC for the first time identified the use of artificial intelligence in financial services as a new vulnerability in our financial system. Clearly, the fundamental statutory mission of the Council is to, to identify and assemble and assess emerging threats to U.S. financial stability, which has become even more critical. At the same time, our systemic risk policy must continue to embrace the myriad benefits of evolving innovations in the financial services sector. Towards this end, both FSOC and the Biden administration have issued recent recommendations and strategies that underscore the importance of facilitating responsible innovation with appropriate oversight structures in place to minimize risk and safeguard consumer and investors. I look forward to discussing these and other issues with our witnesses. And again, I thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I yield back the balance of my time. Ranking member yields back. Today, we welcome the testimony of Paul Kupiak. Dr. Kupiak is senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies systemic risk in the management and regulation of banks and financial markets. Bill Halsey, Mr. Halsey is Senior Vice President of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Center for Capital Market Competitiveness. Mr. G. Kim, Mr. Kim is the General Counsel and Head of Global Policy at the Crypto Council for Innovation. Jeffrey Dunwoody, Mr. Dunwoody is a partner at Cravath, Swain & Moore, where he advises clients on a broad range of regulatory enforcement matters in traditional finance and financial technology. And Amias Garrity, Mr. Garrity is a partner at QED Investors, a venture capital firm investing in the fintech industry. We thank each of you for being with us today. Each of you will be recognized for five minutes to give an oral presentation of your testimony. Without objection, each of your written statements will be made part of our official record. Dr. Kubiak, you are recognized for five minutes for your opening comments. Chairman Hill, Ranking Member Lynch, and distinguished members of the subcommittee, thank you for convening today's hearing and for inviting me to testify. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, but this testimony today are my personal views. In theory, the FSOC's activities should enhance financial stability and prevent new government bailouts. In practice, the FSOC has inappropriately designated non-bank financial firms, failed to identify, and importantly, failed to motivate its members to take proactive actions to mitigate the risks associated with factors that subsequently caused financial instability. The FSOC's 2022 annual report highlighted the need for its members to monitor the interlinkages between digital asset and traditional financial firms. It also recommended that banking supervisors, and I quote, continue to ensure that banks maintain adequate capital and liquidity, sound interest rate risk management practices, and well-developed operational resiliency plans. But events a few short months later revealed that bank supervisors had not ensured that banks maintained adequate capital and liquidity, sound interest rate risk management practices, or well-developed resiliency plans. 
The FSOC and its bank regulatory members failed to identify and guard against the biggest financial stability risk, unrealized interest rate losses from maturity mismatches in the banking system. These risks came home to roost as depositor runs and bank failures required a systemic risk exception and emergency federal guarantees to quell a crisis. I think that the FSOC earns a failing grade on its legislative responsibility to, and I quote, eliminate expectations on the part of shareholders, creditors, and counterparties of financial firms that the government will shield them from losses in the event of failure. Instead of performing as a body that objectively identifies financial stability risks and promotes transparent improvements in financial safety and soundness supervision and regulation, the FSOC's recommendations have been highly politicized. FSOC, change, FSOC changes the standards and procedures it uses to guide designations every time the party in the White House changes. The FSOC's 2023 revisions to its definition of financial instability and the elimination of the need for a cost-benefit assessment and an estimate of the likelihood a designee might experience material financial distress have made FSOC Section 113 designations easier. Published guidance says FSOC designations will target the largest, most interconnected non-bank financial firms. Unless an FSOC designation is required to establish that that designee is on the verge of financial instability, an FSOC designation is effectively punishment for the designee's success. A designee gets new costly supervision by the Federal Reserve Board. A financial regulator that itself is losing $2 billion per week and has a $1.3 trillion unrealized interest rate related loss on its balance sheet. In order to escape an FSOC designation, non-bank financial firms have to shrink their size and jettison some of the key financial businesses that made them large and prosperous. Democrat-controlled FSOCs have never de-designated a non-bank financial firm. Designation reversals occurred with successful litigation or by FSOC votes taken in 2018 when FSOC was controlled by a different party. Until 2021, no FSOC annual report mentioned climate change at all, let alone as a systemic risk threatening financial stability. Yet quashing climate change systemic risk is the holy grail of this administration's FSOC. As my written testimony explains, the FSOC scheme to impose climate change regulation on banks and other financial institutions is not the result of objective data analysis, but instead is the implementation of a political plan to discourage fossil fuel investments, a plan hatched well before the current administration was even elected. Common sense and a significant body of research suggest that regulatory uncertainty discourages private sector investment. The impact of policy uncertainty is bigger when investments are irreversible as they are in the crypto industry. There is a need for certainty in crypto-related regulations, but that certainty can only be provided by comprehensive congressional legislation, not FSOC designations. If Congress is not willing to repeal the FSOC Section 113 powers, it should at least alter the way the FSOC votes. Congress could require FSOC reports and designations to be approved by the ranking member of an appropriate congressional committee in both the House and the Senate, where the voting member is from the party not controlling the executive branch. Thank you very much. Mr. Holzer, you recognize for five minutes.
Chairman Hill, Ranking Member Lynch, and members of the subcommittee, my name is Bill Hulse. I'm the Senior Vice President at the Chamber's Center for Capital Markets Competitiveness. In this role, I oversee the Chamber's work on policy related to financial regulation and the financial sector. Individually, I lead the division's work as it relates to consumer finance and digital assets. Before this, I was an advisor to former Congressman Randy Hulcrin, a member of this committee, and I'm honored to return today as a witness for this important hearing. I will begin by emphasizing what it means for a non-bank financial company to be designated as systemically important. This is not an insignificant matter. Designating a non-bank financial company as systemically important stands to fundamentally change the functioning of the entire entity, not just one or two business lines, and transform the company's entire business model. After FSIC designates a company as systemically important, the Federal Reserve Board must institute capital liquidity and stress testing requirements and supervise it for compliance. These requirements are designed for large, complex banking organizations, such as globally systemically important banks, but in this case apply to a non-bank financial company. Companies that FSIC may consider designating include digital assets companies, non-bank mortgage servicers, hedge funds, private equity funds, asset managers, and insurance companies, just to name a few. FSOC's recent budget indicates it has doubled its staff in recent years, suggesting that it will be much more active. I want to highlight the Chamber's primary concerns with the November 2023 guidance. First, we are concerned about FSOC deprioritizing an activities-based approach to addressing potential systemic risk. <laughs> Despite the FSOC's assertion that the activities-based approach remains a part of its toolbox, we remain deeply concerned that the changes to its procedures reflect FSOC's intention to make designation of individual entities its primary approach. Second, the Chamber is concerned that FSOC's updated guidance would not require it to consider whether a company is vulnerable to material financial distress consistent with a 2016 ruling in the DC Circuit. Third, the Chamber is concerned the updated guidance does not afford due process for companies that may be designated as systemically important. My written testimony includes numerous recommendations that FSAC could adopt or that Congress could require. In addition to FSAC's authority to designate non-bank financial companies as systemically important, it also publishes an annual report. This report can be an important transparency tool for its work and its views about risk to the financial system. Last month, FSAC published its 2023 annual report. The report identifies dozens of market developments and potential risks but in many cases, it fails to demonstrate a nexus of these risks to the financial stability of the United States. In FSOC's view, almost anything and everything can be deemed risky, which begs the question of whether resources are being prioritized to address actual threats to financial stability, an entirely different standard. A few examples in the report I would like to highlight include discussion on digital assets, complex fintech partnerships, and artificial intelligence. Regarding digital assets, the 2023 report states, quote, financial stability vulnerabilities may arise. I support Bert's recommendation that, quote, Congress pass legislation to provide for the regulation of stable coins and the spot market for crypto assets that are not securities. No crypto company that has failed in recent months, including instances of fraud and other breaches of consumer trust, pose risk to the stability of the US financial system. Policymakers should be careful to not conflate, for example, consumer protection and anti-money laundering regulations with systemic risk regulations like capital and liquidity requirements. Finally, I want to underscore the importance of Congress enacting legislation to limit the regulatory whiplash non-bank financial companies must navigate under the new status quo. 
This regulatory uncertainty makes it extremely difficult to innovate, especially given the looming threat of being designated as systemically important and subject to bank-like regulations. The House Financial Services Committee has a strong record of advancing bipartisan legislation to institute stronger due process at FSOC. One such bipartisan bill currently pending before the committee is the FSOC Improvement Act, which would require FSOC to consider alternative approaches before determining a non-bank financial company shall be supervised by the Federal Reserve Board. Thank you again for the opportunity to testify. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Kim. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Hill, Ranking Member Lynch, and members of the subcommittee for the opportunity to testify today on how the FSOC's final guidance on non-bank financial company designation process will impact the digital assets industry. I am grateful for the engagement and leadership of the subcommittee. I am pleased to represent the Crypto Council for Innovation, a global alliance of industry leaders across the digital asset space. We believe that constructive partnership between government and business stakeholders is critical to crafting sound policy and regulation that benefits consumers, investors, and industry. The topic of today's hearing is an important one. CCI strongly supports sound, fit-for-purpose regulation that can safeguard consumers and markets, while fostering innovation necessary to maintain U.S. leadership in an evolving global economy. As a threshold matter, CCI recognizes and appreciates that the FSOC has been tasked by Congress to play a critical role in identifying and assessing systemic risk to U.S. financial stability. Given the importance of this mandate, however, FSOC should remain focused only on risks of such magnitude that require FSOC's unique intervention while respecting the constitutionally and congressionally defined roles of state and federal regulators to oversee the vast majority of financial services and broader market activity. Indeed, FSOC was established by Congress to identify and mitigate the most serious of risks that rise to the level of being systemic, which is deliberately a very high bar. We are also supportive of ensuring a transparent and durable process for FSOC in using its non-bank financial company designation authority, which would include appropriate due process and procedural protections for non-bank financial companies reviewed for potential designation. Digital assets and related technologies are already improving how individuals and businesses are able to access and engage in financial transactions. Tokenized assets and new blockchain-based transaction rails can improve financial access and inclusion, reduce counterparty risk, enhance transparency, improve operational efficiencies, and lower costs. The industry is working to improve on the legacy financial system and solve for gaps that have systematically harmed lower income and historically disadvantaged populations. As just one example, stablecoins allow for lower cost and more efficient cross-border transactions, making it easier for individuals to send money through remittance payments to their families abroad. While remittance through a traditional financial institution costs between 5 and 10% of the transaction, the cost to conduct the same transaction through crypto is typically around 1%. For a global remittance market of $600 billion that is expected to reach $1 trillion by 2026, this reduced cost represents critical savings for consumers and their families. Yet as previously substantiated by the FSOC, <laughs> the size, scale, and interconnectedness of the digital asset industry is dwarfed by the legacy system it seeks to improve. First, by one recent estimate, the total size of the entire global digital asset market measured approximately $1.7 trillion. For comparison, the market cap for U.S. equity markets is approximately $45 trillion, more than 25 times the total size of the global digital asset market. Additionally, the total market cap of the top five U.S. dollar peg stablecoins is below $150 billion, a figure that is smaller than many U.S. publicly traded companies. Second, Digital asset exchanges and, and intermediaries are typically non-banks, which mean they lack direct access to critical financial services infrastructure, including Federal Reserve payment systems, instead relying on traditional institutions 
serve as gatekeepers to such infrastructure. Third, digital assets lack significant interconnectedness with traditional financial systems, a point underscored by FSOC itself in its 2022 report on digital asset stability risk. Appropriate regulation is necessary to mitigate risks, including potential risk to stability. But as outlined in greater detail in my written testimony, to the extent there are risks posed by digital assets, they are largely contemplated and mitigated by existing state and federal regulation. While I agree that a comprehensive federal regulatory framework is necessary to provide further clarity and consistency for digital assets, it is a job of Congress, this institution, to establish such a framework and address any outstanding gaps. FSOC has urged Congress to pass appropriate legislation that provides federal financial regulators with explicit rulemaking authority over the spot market for crypto assets and for a comprehensive framework for stablecoin issuers that would address the associated market integrity, investor, and consumer protection and payment risks. Fortunately, this committee has reported out two bills that seek to do these very things. The Financial Innovation Technology for the 21st Century Act and the Clarity for Payment Stablecoins Act, respectively. CCI is very supportive of advancing these pieces of legislation and agrees with the FSAC that it is critical for Congress to provide additional regulatory certainty through thoughtful and forward-leading legislation. Thank you again, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much. Mr. Dinwood, you're recognized for five minutes. Chairman Hill, Ranking Member Lynch, and members of the subcommittee, thank you for inviting me to participate. I would like to note that I am presenting my own views today and not those of my law firm or any client of the firm. My remarks will focus on three points. The first point, recognizing the important role and function of FSOC. As we all know, in the United States, we have divided oversight over our economy and markets across many regulatory organizations that have different statutes and missions. So there is tremendous benefit in having a formal mechanism like FSOC that is responsible for bringing together experts to identify, monitor, and spearhead responses to risks across the financial system. FSOC also serves as a catalyst for interagency coordination and cooperation. It creates connective tissue across agencies, which helps mitigate regulatory siloing. Regulatory coordination is important at all times, but is absolutely essential when crises occur. I experienced this firsthand throughout 2020 when I was working at the SEC and the Treasury Department. Point number two, non-bank SIFI designations. Only time will tell what will be the practical effects of FSOC's recent decision to replace the 2019 guidance and place FSOC's non-bank SIFI designation authority on, quote, equal footing with FSOC's other powers. My hope is that the decision to place the designation authority on equal footing with FSOC's other powers proves to be only a symbolic change and that non-bank SIFI designation remains, in practice, a tool of last resort. Indeed, it's difficult to understand how the SIFI designation of a company would be the most effective first step to respond to a perceived threat. It's unclear, for example, how designating an asset manager and thereby subjecting it to Federal Reserve supervision and prudential standards would reduce systemic risk. This would be a peculiar approach, given that the Federal Reserve does not appear to have much experience regarding the asset management industry. These questions also apply in the context of many other types of companies. The most effective way to identify and respond to risk to financial stability 
is an activities-based approach, where FSOC focus its, focuses its efforts on industry and economy-wide assessments and works closely with Congress and relevant regulators to respond to any perceived threat. It is heartening that FSOC has noted that its new guidance does not make designation FSOC's default method of addressing risks. FSOC has also stated that it expects to continue to address most risks through its collaboration with primary financial regulators. Let's hope this remains the case. My third point, FSOC's areas of focus going forward. FSOC and its member agencies have finite resources to bring to bear. So it's essential that the council remain disciplined in its approach. FSOC should resist any attempts to be used to advance policy or regulatory agendas or narratives in support of such agendas that are unrelated to FSOC's mandates. At the same time, FSOC must stay focused on providing a sober assessment of the factors and areas that truly present vulnerabilities, risks, and threats to financial stability. Based on a review of FSOC's recently published annual report, it appears that the Council is not sufficiently focused on the vulnerabilities and risks that arise from the government and state actors. Make no mistake, actions and policies of the government create risks and vulnerabilities and should be examined and monitored. To name just one example, many concerns have been raised regarding potential effects on the financial services sector and broader economy of the large volume of financial regulatory rulemaking initiatives advanced over the past three years. Given the number of significant proposals and the questions raised concerning their potential cumulative effects, this is a topic the Council should be actively examining and monitoring. In closing, I thank you again for inviting me to participate today, and I look forward to addressing any questions. Thank you, Mr. Garrity. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Lynch. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today and to support this committee's work. In my written testimony, I covered three topics. First, offered some historical perspective on the creation of the Council and why its ability to create accountability directly responds to weaknesses that we saw in the lead up to the global financial crisis. Second, I discussed the importance of the Council's authority to require supervision of, non, of complex non-bank financial companies and why the most recent guidance restores balance for an activities-based approach and the Council's narrow entity-based approach focused on designation. Third, in my written testimony, I covered why the Council's work is more important than ever as we round 15 years from the height of the financial crisis. As we begin, however, I want to highlight one story about the nature of the Council's work and to offer some reflections that may assist this committee in its engagement. Most importantly, I want to highlight that we cannot have an innovative financial system if financial risks can build up without oversight and if regulators are unable to coordinate across markets. In the early days of the Council, memories of the crisis were fresh. We were motivated and we had much work to do to create an infrastructure for the Council to fulfill its mandate. For example, in July of 2011, the Council published the first ever financial stability report of the US government. It was a mammoth undertaking 
And we had completed it with incredible collaboration from economists and analysts across the member agencies. But I remember a blog post that I read a few weeks later. And the blog post made fun of the council for putting so much effort into its monitoring. The blog pointed out that financial crises rarely, rarely come one after another. And so the summer of 2011 was a time that the council should have been taking a breather, not doing its important work. Confident that the probability of another crisis happening on its watch then was close to zero. But that's not the council's job. The council's job is in fact to try to analyze low probability, high severity events. And it is their duty to try to prevent those events. Because we have a dynamic financial system, we cannot know in advance the nature of the risks or the innovations that may come in time. Therefore, the strength of the council is not its few target authorities, but rather its unique purview of the financial system. The council's two main approaches complement each other. One focused on activities, which the council has stated will be how it addresses most risks as well as its narrow authority to bring non-bank financial companies who could pose a threat to financial stability under enhanced prudential standards. I know that many on this committee believe in a wait-and-see approach to innovation. Wait and to regulate until the risks are clear. Looking through this lens underscores how important designation authority is to support innovation. Imagine a new financial services activity that has an uncertain risk profile. The market participants in this activity could include a large number of small players, mostly unlevered, and let's say one extremely large player with a 25 to 1 leverage ratio on its balance sheet and a trillion dollars of exposure. How should regulators address that risk? Certainly, they could consider activities-based approaches. But could this company be considered too big to fail? Would that consideration by other market participants give it an unfair competitive advantage? What is the appropriate response to this risk? Is it appropriate to put regulatory burdens on a large number of small participants when the risks are associated with one giant highly levered market participant? Doing so would still leave unfair market distortions in place. As I close this testimony, I know that some on this committee have concerns about the Council's interest in a number of new and emerging trends. To take three hot-button examples, AI, crypto, and climate. I would argue that the financial stability risks from climate, crypto, and AI are all currently limited. But it is the wisdom of the statutory language to require the Council to focus on potential and emerging risks. This may seem counterintuitive, from the language we usually use about systemic risks. Because systemic risks sound like they should be everywhere, everything, all at once. But it is precisely the wisdom of the statutory mandate to be forward-looking. And considering risks that haven't yet materialized is the only thing that can give us some hope that the Council may, take, may make financial crises less common and less severe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank all of our witnesses. We'll now turn to member questions. And the Chair recognizes himself for five minutes for questions. Last June, when CFTC Chairman Benham testified before the House Agriculture Committee, he talked about FSOC's recommendation that Congress enact legislation to fill the regulatory gap over the spot market for Bitcoin uh, and for all digital assets that weren't deemed securities. 
He expressed support for our market structure legislation, which he said would provide his agency with additional authority to do just that. I couldn't agree more, and that's why, as I noted in my opening statement, many Democrats and Republicans came together in this committee and at the Agriculture Committee to work on legislation to protect consumers, provide regulatory clarity, to improve uh, the broken status quo, and to actually fill that gap that FSOC had noted. Likewise, we've been working on stablecoin legislation, uh, which also was noted by FSOC. And um, uh, it, one issue there that uh, I think is important to deal with. Uh, so we've taken action in both committees there. Mr. Hulse, um, would attempting to sidestep Congress be overreached by FSOC from your study of how FSOC's worked over the past decade? So as a general matter, I'm concerned that the November 2023 guidance gives FSOC more supervisory leeway to sidestep Congress, as you described. It has made it much easier for FSOC to designate a non-bank financial company, such as a digital assets company, payment stablecoin issuer, as systemically important. As it relates to digital assets, FSOC is effectively telling Congress, in my view, if you don't do things our way, we are going to consider designating a non-bank financial company, such as a digital assets company, systemically important. This would not be the carefully tailored approach that is being considered by the Financial Services Committee and the Agriculture Committee. And importantly, it would mean only companies that FSOC has designated as systemically important would be subject to these heightened standards, not the rest of the market. Yeah. Therefore, the rest of the market would not receive that clarity that Congress is trying to provide. So, you know, making that designation is, is a tool, but it's not a way to take care of, you know, an entire framework type issue. It's really, that's why it's interconnected. That's why it's large. That's why it's activities based, uh, uh, et cetera. Um, Mr. Kupiak, uh, so I don't, did, uh, did the bank regulators notice the interconnectedness and risks associated with uninsured deposits? Last year, did I, I did I missed I missed out on any warning before Silicon Valley went down? Were, were the were they not alert to something that 175 banks had over 50 percent of their deposits uh, in an uninsured capacity? Could that have been considered a systemic risk? Would some analyst of the Treasury Department not have noticed that? Uh, the bank regulators clearly uh, really blew that. Um, the interactions with the crypto industry were at Signature Bank and Silvergate Bank, uh, but the actual problems that caused the failure of that and SVB were the interest rate mismatch that those banks had yeah. invested. My, in. my point is that that was a major systemic yeah. threat and that some institutions within the depository category of institutions were more uh, at risk than others. Would it bring down the entire... Uh, financial system, I don't know, but that's the whole point I thought of FSOC sort of looking out and doing surveillance across the board, and that's one that's right under their nose that's not remotely new or esoteric or emerging, and it's, you know, that's somewhat troubling, I think, and I think that's why we saw the regulators come to this committee and do a major mea culpa on, on that uh, topic. Mr. Kim, over the last two years, FSOC has made digital assets one of its top priorities, do you think it makes sense for FSOC to list digital assets as one of its top four priorities, given the uh, relative size of the digital asset market compared to the example that was used in testimony, for example, that, that the, the equity market cap is $45 trillion compared to $1.7 trillion? 
Thank you for your question. Um, while I understand the need to monitor new developments, um, I believe any analysis of digital assets industry will reflect that it's not a systemic risk, uh, a fact that FSOC itself has acknowledged. When it comes to mitigating any risks and providing the regulatory clarity, that is again the role of, the, of Congress, this institution, to provide that clarity uh, through a comprehensive federal framework that addresses uh, market oversight for spot crypto assets as well as for payment stablecoin issuers. Again, a fact that FSOC has recommended and acknowledged itself. So that clarity has to come from Congress, not from FSOC. Mr. Dinwadi, I'd like you to take this question maybe offline, just send me a written answer to it. Um, talking about third-party reviews, that was also noted in FSOC uh, as risk in the fintech arena. I'd like for you to send me your thoughts specifically on third-party risk that FSOC really rises to the level of FSOC's uh, consideration. And with that, I will yield back and ask the ranking member for his questions for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Last month, FSOC released its annual report on emerging threats to U.S. financial stability, and importantly, for the first time, the Council identified the use of artificial intelligence in financial services as an emerging vulnerability in the financial systems. Now, I suppose basic AI uh, has, has been very, very helpful. I know that a lot of the firms are using it for personalized consumer services and uh, in some cases consumer loan underwriting, uh, some risk management auditing uh, at a very basic level. Uh, and, I, and I think it has, it has actually helped the efficiency and cost reduction of those services. However, the evolving use of AI, uh, especially the deep learning models, uh, present some corresponding risks. Uh, for example, FSOC warns that varying AI technologies, uh, again, those deep learning models and systems, present a so-called black box problem, uh, Mr. Garrity. Uh, the systems are so complex and, and opaque uh, that interpretability of the system, in other words, making that nexus between inputs and outputs is impossible in many cases, or, or as they put it, astronomically improbable. Uh, so when we have people who are, uh, we have asset managers that are using AI right now. Uh, and as we've, as we've seen uh, uh, recently, we had a major pension fund, the Canadian Teachers Pension Fund lost $95 million when FX went down. Uh, in cases like that, where you have a, a major loss on the part of a, a client, uh, especially uh, a pension fund that's, that's trying to protect the long-term interests of those employees, how do, we, how do we make sure that we protect consumers and investors uh, when if, if the AI algorithms are actually promoting uniformity or, or hurting behavior, which again is, is a real threat, or uh, the interpretability to understand what is actually going on with the AI system is not there. Uh, wouldn't it make sense to have FSOC have undiluted power to be able to review 
activity like that in order to carry out their statutory mandate? Mr. Lynch, I think this is a really important question and, and actually, as you highlight, a really difficult one. Um, the truth is that AI research is not mainly being driven by the financial services industry, and that's a change from 10 or 20 years ago where financial services was actually much more on the cutting edge of AI, so they would have the more advanced AI models. We're now seeing the AI models become much more advanced and much more powerful outside of the financial services industry, and I think this is a, this is a legitimate challenge. At the same time, as you point out, um, just to take one example that you mentioned, the possibility of AI giving high-quality advice to consumers for low cost, that's actually a tremendously hopeful thing that we could have. I mean, I have um, a colleague who uh, has a company doing that in Mexico. He brought it to an executive in the Philippines, and they said, well, does the, your AI speak Tagalog? And all of a sudden, boom, wow. Training on Mexico can provide advice to people in the Philippines. This is near magic, but as you say, it's a, it's a really important question. I think the one thing I would point out in response to your question is that actually the statutory and legal framework here is pretty consistent with wow, how the financial services thought in the past, which is model validation, so outputting you know, model outputs, not just inputs, and making sure that the managers need to understand what their models do before they're allowed to use them. Even that is put under pressure, but I think that's initially where we have to start. Right. What, one, we won't have enough time for this, but maybe you can respond offline. Uh, many of these uh, asset management firms are actually purchasing. They're not building their own AI. They're purchasing it from an outside party who, who are not subject to regulation, and that, that creates a, a regulatory gap, and I'm struggling with how to deal with that. But uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll get back. Gentleman yields back. Mr. Emmer, the whip of the House, majority whip of the House is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Hill, and thank you for holding this important hearing today to examine the unchecked, frequently weaponized Financial Stability Oversight Council. This Dodd-Frank era body of unelected financial bureaucrats wields immense power deciding whether an entity or industry is deemed, quote, systematically risky and therefore should be subjected to the Fed's iron fist of regulation. However, the Financial Stability Oversight Council has morphed into a political weapon for the administrative state, circumventing congressional oversight and stifling American innovation. While many Financial Stability Oversight Council members are individually accountable to Congress and the public, the Dodd-Frank Act created a troubling loophole by empowering these same officials to sit on the Financial Stability Oversight Council, it established a body effectively immune to congressional oversight, raising concerns about a potential disconnect between its actions and the will of the American people. These unchecked bureaucrats abuse their positions on the Financial Stability Oversight Council to bypass elected representatives and crush politically unpopular industries and companies. Case in point, digital assets. In, 2000, in 2022, the White House threatened to unleash the Financial Stability Oversight Council on the digital asset industry unless Congress enacted the White House's draconian anti-crypto legislation. This action wasn't about regulation or consumer protection. It was about killing an entire industry the administration doesn't like. Why? 
because the Financial Stability Oversight Council operates in a black box, as we heard, shielded from both the American people and their elected representatives in Congress. This is unacceptable. This is why, since my first term in office, I've fought for accountability and transparency. In 2015, I introduced legislation to subject the Financial Stability Oversight Council to the annual appropriations process, ensuring the council answers to the very body they're supposed to be accountable to, Congress. This bill passed out of the House in the 114th Congress, and this week, I reintroduced the Financial Stability Oversight Reform Act to continue this effort. This legislation will give Congress the ability to conduct oversight over the Financial Stability Oversight Council, and it will force the Council's research arm to consult with the public before wielding its regulatory club. We must instill transparency and accountability. We must protect American innovation from the political whims of unelected bureaucrats. Let's ensure that America remains the land of opportunity. Let's restore accountability, protect American innovation, and finally rein in the weaponized Financial Stability Oversight Council. I urge my colleagues to support this legislation, and Mr. Chair, I yield back the balance of my time. Gentleman yields back. Uh, the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Dr. Foster, is recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you to our witnesses. And, uh, and uh, Mr. Hulse, actually, for his kind shout out of um, my uh, FSOC Improvement Act, um, a bipartisan bill that has been, we've been trying to move in various forms for several years now. Um, my, uh, see, how do I say this? You know, I, I, as a new member of this committee, I spent one of the most unpleasant evenings of my life reading a report called AIG Is the Risk Systemic? where I got to just understand finally how the risk of a giant non-bank op operation had put our entire economy at risk and just how complex our system interconnected it was. And so I understand and I appreciate the mission of FSOC to look across the whole economy, to look at things that appear to be safe or in, in fact not. You know, AIG was famously referred to, if I remember correctly, by um, the Republican Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke referred to AIG as a, a healthy and well-run insurance company with a hedge fund grafted onto it. And that um, is not something that can be allowed to, to happen in a well-regulated economy. And uh, Mr. Dinwoody, I share your expectation that designating a non-bank firm as systemically important remains but one tool in FSOC's toolbox for fighting systemic risk. Um, under the revised guidance, FSOC may also take an activities-based approach, direct interagency coordination, and submit recommendations to Congress. As uh, another famous uh, saying came in, in this room several years ago, that if you have a bazooka, and everyone knows you have a bazooka, you might not have to use it. And so I think that giving the FSOC the ability to designate as a last resort is an essential uh, element of, of the power they have to fix problems short of, of full designation. Um, you know, while SIFI designation of non-bank firms uh, should always be considered, as should alternatives, when they present systemic or, or near-systemic risk to the economy. And that's the point of my, um, my bill, the FSOC Improvement Act. Um, if we need an example of why oversight of non-bank financial firms is essential, we can look at China today. Last Friday, the China-based trust company, Zongzi, Zongzhu Enterprise Group, 
filed for bankruptcy with gigantic amounts of debt. Um, and it is, you know, one, only one of many elements of the collapse of the non-bank uh, structures that have been allowed to grow in China um, without um, adequate regulation. And so those are real risks that are going to continue to cause China uh, trouble for at least the rest of this decade. Uh, Evergrande is another China-based trust company that's famously uh, been failing. Um, so, uh, Mr. Gerdy, um, thank you for joining us today. Um, do you believe the council um, is going to, as a result of the new, uh, new guidance, really take the decision lightly to issue non-bank SIFI designation? Um, can you describe the other tools that, that are available to them? My pleasure, and I think it's a very important point that the designation authority is quite narrow. Um, in fact, if you think about the FSOX authorities, activities-based approaches are really all of the tools of all of the regulators, and the designation authority is a very small tool. It should only be used to uh, address the risks associated with individual institutions. And I think as you point out with the Chinese trusts, it is not uncommon in the history of finance for non-bank companies to use financial tools to go create very significant risks in the economy. And it's precisely that type of behavior that the FSOC needs to be on the lookout for. And, and so what are the, um, you know, if you just imagine the staircase as an entity or a, a sector starts ramping up in risk, you know, what, how would you envisage um, FSOC using its authority short of, um, you know, short of designation? So I think many of the examples that have been raised as things to be worried about are actually examples of the system working. So for example, I would argue that the FSOC's report on crypto assets and its making recommendations to Congress is a perfect example of how when an issue is probably not uh, a financial stability threat at this stage, it should be monitoring it, making recommendations, seeking to work with Congress. So that would be one example of a first step. Another step is um, when there is clear authority in a, one of the member agencies, you can make recommendations. You can look at the money market fund, mutual fund re reforms that were suggested by FSOC and ultimately carried out by the SEC. And I think only in very narrow instances, and to the point earlier, um, you know, uh, Mr. Kupiak said that uh, no companies were de-designated, but in fact, the Obama administration did de-designate de GE Capital. So you can see there's a, a number of steps, both up and down the ladder. Thank you. I believe my time has expired, and thanks so much. Yield back. Gentleman yields back. Mr. Davidson, the vice chairman of the subcommittee, is recognized for five minutes. I think the chairman, I think our witnesses today, and I'm glad that we're focusing in on FSOC. You know, frankly, FSOC, since it was created, is an important role in shaping our markets, and we want to make sure they're used for good and not for other agendas. Uh, Mr. Hulse, uh, unlike the 22 or 2012 guidance, the 2023 guidance does not include any quantitative bright lines like asset thresholds that should be considered when initially uh, considering SIFI designations. Given that much of the 2023 final guidance reverts back to the 2012 interpretation, why do you think the administration admitted, omitted these bright lines? So I'll say as a general matter, bright lines are helpful to providing the market and understanding of what direction a regulatory body like FSOC might take. 
However, asset, an asset threshold should not be an indicator of systemic risk in of itself. It should be one of many measurements that FSOC uses to understand whether or not an entity or market is systemically important. Um, I'm not exactly sure why FSOC chose to veer away from using this going forward, but certainly a question this committee should be focused on. Well, here's the concern. You know, frankly, FSOC met on a Saturday several months ago, and on a Sunday, they seized the assets of Signature Bank. Now, Signature Bank wasn't insolvent, wasn't in default, and one of their board members, former chairman of this committee, whose portrait hangs right over there, Barney Frank, said that he believed it was a war on crypto that motivated this. Not a systemic risk of crypto, not even a systemic risk of crypto related to Silicon Valley Bank, let alone the entire market. But it does seem like there's a coordinated effort underway um, with FSOC being the kind of common hub for some of these regulators. That it's been termed, you know, maybe inappropriately, maybe appropriately, uh, choke point 2.0, 3.0, 6.0, some iteration of some agenda-driven war on the financial sector. And, of course, Operation Choke Point was termed after the Obama administration's uh, targeted attack of essentially its own enemies list. Not necessarily systemic risk, but political enemies mostly. Uh, given Elizabeth Warren's 2024 campaign theme of a war on crypto and her digital assets bill and her, frankly, her influence over the appointees to the people that end up holding these positions uh, that Democrats select for leadership, people suspect there's a lot of truth to this war on crypto. Does anyone else feel like those are part of the motivations? Any concerns about the same things? Anyone? I'll tell, I, mean, I think the uh, FSOC's agenda is very politicized and it is very influenced by those kinds of views. And uh, the banking regulators um, probably aren't predisposed uh, to, to want crypto type transactional functions to grow and prosper because it takes away from the banking industry. Um, and the, the banking industry that was uh, doing crypto-related activity in Signature Bank was, in fact, uh, approved in, uh, by the, uh, uh, the, the, the controller of the currency in their letter. It was, a, it was they were using dollar, uh, they created a blockchain, uh, private blockchain system to trade dollar, uh, dollar balances between members. So it was actually an approved banking activity. Uh, so uh, I, I, I agree, it's for the, the agenda is very politicized. And, and by the way, I think GE Capital was de-designated because they jettisoned all their financial, uh, they sold all their financial businesses and fell below the 85% threshold for non-bank financial firms that the FSOC could designate, if my memory serves me. Yeah, thank you. Not because of a systemic risk from them, for sure. And, and uh, you know, good concern for how it's been used in the, in the past. Uh, Mr. Kupiak, just one final thing. Um, you know, as a result of not just Signature Bank, but other failures, uh, a lot of it related to this concern over targeting crypto in particular, um, but some definitely, when you look at Silicon Valley Bank, real problems. Um, the Federal Reserve created uh, this expansion of FDIC, and it seems that there may also be a war on smaller banks, an effort to consolidate banks uh, for the benefit of the biggest banks. Does anyone share that concern? I mean, the, 
I mean, the Federal Reserve Board has special powers over the largest banks and bank holding companies. Um, and community banks uh, are, are a different breed entirely. Uh, I don't know that there's a war on community banks, but community banks uh, certainly have uh, experienced uh, a large reduction in numbers over the last. Yeah. Thank you. I wish I had more time to explore this. And if you have other opinions, please follow up in writing or reach out to our office. My time's expired, and I yield. Gentleman yields back. Uh, Mr. Sherman, California is recognized for five minutes. I have a few comments. It's said that uh, the FSOC is immune to, testimony, to oversight from Congress. I think every one of its members testifies before Congress gets questions about FSOC. I've seen the crypto folks. They say crypto will shake the world. And now they're here to say, we're just a little feather fly, floating down, and FSOC shouldn't pay any attention to us. Then we're told that it's politics involved in crypto. There is tremendous political power pushing us toward accepting crypto, minimizing the effect of the US dollar as an international uh, medium of, uh, of exchange. Empower, uh, uh, leading to a tremendous decline in the wealth of the average American family that has lower interest rates because of the role that the U.S. dollar pet plays. And the fact is that we have now pending before the SEC the powers of Wall Street trying to get into crypto. I hope the SEC is able to say no, uh, but to say that uh, the big banks are after are trying to stop crypto. No, the big banks are trying to make money off of crypto. Um, not every risk that our economy faces is because a SIFI's involved. Uh, our giant uh, federal deficit is, is perhaps the biggest threat to our economy. China may be the biggest threat to our economy, but neither the US government or the Chinese government can be designated a SIFI. Um, there's a tendency to look not at just, I, I believe the SIFI designation should be limited to where a particular company's decline or demise can just uh, severely hurt our economy. Uh, but we saw with Silicon Valley Bank that an entity's demise may not itself imperil our economy, but may be viewed as the domino that causes other similar companies to go down. Um, I think that SIFI should be designated based on their liabilities, not the size of their assets, although there's a real connection in most of the financial world. Uh, Lehman Brothers didn't hurt us because they had too many assets. They hurt our economy because they had too many liabilities that they did not fully pay or would not have fully paid had there not been intervention. Uh, mutual funds don't have major liabilities, except if they have a contingent liability, if there's fraud or theft from the institution. Um, we do have to look at a company's liabilities and its contingent liabilities, and AIG, which uh, the gentleman from Illinois brought out, is a good example. They had contingent liabilities for insured risks that were properly regulated by the state insurance regulators, and those individual subsidiaries did just fine. Then they had enormous contingent liabilities for uh, credit default swaps, not regulated at all, and that's what could have taken down our entire economy 
had uh, there not be an intervention. Uh, Mr. Dune uh, Woody, um, what considerations should we take into account uh, as to whether uh, an entity is a SIFI when it comes to uh, asset managers? They don't have liabilities, they don't borrow money, uh, but they certainly advise with regard to huge chunks of capital. I actually think that the SIFI designation concept doesn't make sense when applied to asset managers, in part because the result of SIFI designation is supervision by the Federal Reserve and prudential standards applied by the Federal Reserve. A, it's not clear if the Federal Reserve knows anything about asset managers, and B, it's unclear whether those requirements would address any perceived risk. Well, you certainly don't have reserves if you're a, uh, a mutual fund, for example. Um, on the other hand, um, I'm certainly concerned with the whole depository issue. I think we have good checks on depository, but if there was ever a question of whether my Vanguard uh, mutual fund actually had the security there, boy, that would shake the economy up. So whether it's SIFI or something else, we've got to make sure uh, that we're ultra careful on the depository uh, issue. And I could go on and on, except the chairman will cut me off. I yield back. Indeed, the gentleman's time has expired. The gentleman from Oklahoma, Mr. Lucas, is recognized for his questions for five minutes. I want to thank the witnesses for agreeing to testify and to the chair for holding this uh, hearing. Uh, Mr. Dinwoody, in 2019, FSOC prioritized an activities-based approach and applied a cost-benefit analysis as a part of the designation process. Could you discuss what led to that change and the difference between the, gui the, the guidance finalized in November? <clears throat> I think there's two things. Um, first is just the common sense concept of, and I think we all do it at home, when you're making any decision, you weigh the pros and cons and do some analysis. So that's the common sense point. Second point is um, the court in MetLife, um, as was mentioned earlier, uh, struck down the designation pointing out that the decision was arbitrary and capricious because there was no cost-benefit analysis done. So I think you put the two of those together and that was the thinking. Again, do you, in your testimony you indicated that the designation should be used only as a backstop. Could you describe the immediate impact as a designation would have on a firm and explain how the conversations that FSOC would have with the firm uh, prior to the designation? So the designation process in general will take a year and a half. So just as a side, there's a question as to if there's really a threat. Does designation actually address the threat as opposed to legislative or regulatory action? And so once there's a designation, the Federal Reserve is tasked with developing prudential standards to apply to that entity. Now, back when GE Capital was designated, that took two years. And so if you stop and think about it, we're looking at three years before the perceived benefit of designation would apply. 
Mm -hmm. That's why my view is that the more common sense approach is let's look across, look across the industry, work as needed with Congress. If there's a gap, this body would address it or the primary regulator. Mr. Hulls, in your testimony, you touched on how even the federal banking agencies concede that proposals such as Basel III could push activity out of banks and into non-banks which the banking agencies could then use to justify authority and regulation over non-banks. Could you elaborate on this potential self-perpetuating outcome and how to properly align FSOC's focus? Thank you for the question. So by driving activity outside of the regulating banking system, which the Basel III capital standards absolutely have the risk of doing, and moving it into the non-bank system, banking system, you know, federal banking regulators, um, specifically uh, Chairman Gruber made a speech on this last fall, described the solution as imposing bank-like regulations on these non-banks. Um, from the Chamber's perspective, we think a much more constructive approach that would lead to economic growth would be for there to be healthier competition in the banking system that allows them to compete with non-banks. Uh, Mr. Holes, I was here when we did the Dodd-Frank Act and went through that horrible, hideous conference committee process. Could you outline the deviation between FSOC's new designation guidance with the statutory authority granted under the Dodd-Frank Act? Where does it fall short? So there, there are numerous places where the updated guidance deviates from FSOC statutory authority and is inconsistent with the MetLife decision. Um, primarily, I'd like to focus you know, my answer here on the MetLife decision, which um, the last witness pointed out was part of the, I would say, impetus or drive for instituting the 2019 guidance. Primarily, the updated guidance finalized in November um, fails to emphasize the vulnerability of a company to material financial distress and instead really em simply emphasizes that a company might be significant or large, but that in of in itself does not mean a company might be vulnerable to material financial distress or a risk to the financial stability of the United States. That conference committee that created Dodd-Frank was the most fascinating process where the housework product was dropped in the trash can at the first meeting and we took up the Senate document. Uh, I learned a lot about the legislative process that day. You'll back, Mr. Chairman. The gentleman from Oklahoma yields back. The gentleman from Oklahoma, uh, Illinois is recognized for his questions for five minutes. Mr. Caston. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, thank you all for being here. I'm reminded as I sit here, there was this, this great line, I think back in 2019, when Ben Bernanke and, and Hank Paulson issued a statement saying that financial risk tends to migrate around regulatory obstacles like a river flows around rocks. Um, I see a lot of heads nodding. Is there anybody who disagrees with the wisdom of uh, Mr. Bernanke and <laughs> Mr. Paulson on that? Um, um, you know, we're, we're having, there's a lot of references to 2008 here because, you know, one of the ways that risk could migrate around Iraq was to park itself at an insurance company um, that sat outside of FSOC. And, and of course, we saw where that sits at this point. We thankfully did not have any systemic risk from the failures back in March of Signature and, and SVB. But I also don't think we should lose sight of the fact that we call them stable coins. They break the buck more often than a money mm -hmm. market fund does. Um, 
right? The algorithmic stable coins broke the bank, it broke the buck. The only reason USDC is trading at a dollar today is because their reserves were in uninsured deposits and the FDIC bailed them out. Um, they're smart capitalists, right? They, they, they ducked risk. They parked the risk in something that wasn't there, but there is still that real risk. And I, I, I think uh, Mr. Lynch had mentioned the, the recent FSOC report where they emphasize that the financial stability vulnerabilities still exist from the potential of risk runs on stable coins. And so I guess, Mr. Garrity, I'm curious if this is, this is purely speculative, but the next time a stablecoin breaks the buck, because statistically it's gonna happen, um, if there's a run or some wave of redemptions, where do you think we should be concerned about? Is it in treasuries? Is it, is it you know, is, is, is the barn door closed on uninsured bank deposits? Where is the risk? Why are they too small to matter? I think you're right to, first of all, I think this is an important question. One of the big challenges uh, with stable coins is that they, they look and feel like a bank deposit. And um, this is, you know, we have a long history of things that look and feel like bank deposits not being regulated like bank deposits. Um, and this is one of the constant uh, struggles for the financial system. As you say, risk, risk flows like a river around a rock. And one thing that people really like is things that look and feel like a bank deposit but aren't bank deposits. That's just a constant of history. Um, so I, I think you're right to say that the first place we're going to look is that um, is towards uninsured deposits, in part because some of the entities like USDC are actually trying to be responsible. So they're trying to keep their assets in the safest possible place and trying to tie them one for one. Um, so I, I think that's the first place to look, especially in the US market. I think globally, it's basically impossible to tell. And I think this is one of the risks that we in the FSOC and you, the FSOC members, we here in this room need to be worried about. Yeah, but I, I don't know what the answer is. No, I think, I think I speak for everyone in this room. We would like to see a robust audited balance sheet for Tether <laughs> someday. Um, I, you know, I was, I was going to ask you about sort of a balance between activities-based and entity-based regulation. You did such a good job in your opening statement. I don't think I need to ask, but was there anything you wanted to add on that? Because I, I, I appreciated what you said about the, the need for balance and what, what lives in there. Well, I, I think the, the one thing I would say is, and, you know, uh, Mr. Dinwiddie talked about the timing here. The, the timing only works if the council can act in a preventative measure. Designation is not something that you could do in a crisis. It would not make a difference in a crisis. Um, nor would regulation, right? It's the nature of regulation that we always give companies months or even a year to, to, to conform with that regulation. So the council's work only makes sense if it is done far enough advance of a concern. And it is just the nature of financial crises, you know, in June of 2008, people were thinking, oh, we're through it. So it's just the nature of financial crises that by the time you can see the crisis coming, it's too late for that preventative. Well, and maybe, I realize I'm short of time, but maybe just make a general observation, and this is for the chairman and everyone on the committee. It, it strikes me that, that crypto markets are either systemically risky right now because of all their entanglements or there's they're so full of wash trades and and illegal activity that they basically don't matter and and i don't think we have enough robust balance sheets to know the answer to that but we do but we do know that there are significant significant risks that remain out there i mean the state of florida right now is considering socializing their insurance industry because insurers are pulling out of the state 
at, at what point does that create a risk that actually hits the banking sector? Um, we've, you know, we had the, the Trump CFTC reported that the, the, the more likely you are to be in a flood prone area, the more likely the banks are to offload your risk onto the taxpayer in Fannie and Freddie. These are not regulated by the bank supervisors. But we have to be watching for those risks. And I think my general observation is we need more, not fewer rocks in that river right now. The gentleman's time has expired. The gentleman from Tennessee, Mr. Rose, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Hill, uh, for holding this uh, hearing. And thank you to our witnesses for taking time to be with us today. Mr. Kim, I believe that my colleagues on both sides of the aisle are proponents of expanding and ensuring access to capital and financial freedoms for all Americans. Digital assets provide investors with financial freedoms that some would not have access to from a traditional banking system. However, opponents scapegoat the digital assets industry and push unneeded regulation in the name of consumer protection. I believe it is important that we use a light touch approach as outlined in Chairman Hill's Financial Innovation and Technology or FIT for the 21st Century Act to maintain innovation while providing consumer protection. This legislation would establish robust consumer protections and clear guardrails for market participants. Mr. Kim, would the digital asset space benefit from added consumer protections as outlined in the Fit for the 21st Century Act? Thank you for your question, Congressman. Uh, yes, it absolutely would. Uh, I think the digital asset industry uh, needs certainty and clarity, which Fit 21 provides. It provides for um, various ranges of categories for registration purposes, and to your point, it also provides for enhanced, robust consumer and investor protection standards, uh, customer disclosure, segregation of funds, clear prohibition on commingling of funds, um, making sure that you can't trade on your own exchange, for example. All of this provides certainty to the market, to the investors, to the consumers, as well as allows responsible digital asset innovation to uh, continue to flourish here in the United States, which is important, especially as other jurisdictions outside of the U.S are developing uh, regulatory frameworks uh, in their respective countries. And what the digital assets industry wants is that clarity and certainty, which will benefit both the market participants as well as investors and consumers themselves. Thank you, appreciate that. Mr. Kim, it strikes me that there is a stark difference between the size and scale between the digital assets industry and industries that have previously been regulated by the Financial Stability Oversight Council. To put it in context, just two of the previously designated non-bank financial companies together had a total of $8 trillion in life insurance exposure. That figure is nearly five times the size of the entire global crypto market. Mr. Kim, can you discuss why this incredible difference in size is important to the conversation and what other differences currently exist between digital assets and other non-banks? Absolutely. Uh, as you just pointed out, Congressman, uh, the entire global uh, digital asset market cap is $1.7 trillion compared to your example of $8 trillion for two insurance companies. There's a big significant difference in terms of the scale of size between the digital assets industry versus insurance companies that you identified. Uh, the other difference is a lack of significant interconnections between the, uh, between the two examples here. Um, insurance, of course, is a key risk mitigant, uh, mitigant tool which could pervade the entire economy, the broader financial system, and could create a cascading effect. Digital assets, as I mentioned in my written testimony in more detail, it lacks a significant interconnections with the broader traditional financial service system and infrastructure. So those are two things that I would highlight for you. Thank you. Mr. Din Dinwoody, as you mentioned in your testimony, in December 2019, FSOC adopted the activities-based approach to monitoring and addressing systemic risk. 
However, in November, FSOC revised, November of 2023, FSOC revised their approach and shifted to an analytical framework. Can you explain the criticism from the courts that led to the December 2019 activities-based approach? There was two criticisms primarily from the court. The first was that FSOC failed to follow its own procedures in the designation. And then secondly, a failure to conduct a cost benefit as part of the designation process was arbitrary and capricious according to the court. Can you elaborate on the detail and effort that went into the development of the activities-based approach? Well, at the beginning of the Trump administration, the president um, instructed the Treasury Department to develop recommendations for improvement of FSOC's SIFI designation authority. That led to a Treasury Department report with a number of recommendations. Ultimately, that led to the development of the 2019 guidance, the activities-based approach. So it was um, uh, a few years long of an approach leading up to that um, significant engagement with the public, not to imply that there wasn't engagement with the public in the 2023 guidance, there was a comment period, but there was a longer run up to it. Thank you, and I see my time has expired and I yield back. Gentleman yields back. The gentleman from Texas, Mr. Green, is recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I thank the ranking member as well. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I am concerned about uh, climate change as an emerging and rising threat. Apparently, uh, FSOC in 2021 identified it as such a possibility in a report on climate-related financial risk. Uh, this is important to me because I happen to live in Houston, Texas. We happen to have experienced Hurricane Harvey, over one trillion gallons of water, one trillion in a four-day period. There was water all over Harris County, places that never flooded before flooded. In that time, 68 deaths from the hurricane, 125 billion in damages caused by Hurricane Harvey across Texas. So you can well imagine that a person who lives along the Gulf Coast, who experiences these acts of God quite regularly, would be of some concern. Uh, I would like to ask you, uh, those of you who would care to answer, I won't pick on you unless you force me to. <laughs> what, what, what would you say to me in terms of this being an emerging threat? Do you not perceive it as such, uh, as it relates to financial institutions that may be located within uh, this area along the Gulf Coast? And uh, perhaps we'll start with uh, Mr. Um, is it Garrity? Uh, if you would kindly do so, Mr. Garrity, we'll start with you. Well, um, first of all, thank you for the question. I do think it's an important issue. And um, the, the number one observation that I would have looking at uh, what we see in examples like Hurricane Harvey or the wildfires in California or across the western coast of the United States um, is that these impacts are very nonlinear, right? To your example about a trillion gallons of water. 
right? These are um, impacts where the risk has been building for many years, but we're now seeing impacts that far exceed what we were sort of capable of imagining. And I think that is precisely the type of risk that can create a threat to financial stability. When something, you think you understand it, right? This is sort of what happened in 2007 and 2008. We thought we understood what was going on in subprime mortgages. We thought it was self-contained. And then it turned out that it was connected in many more ways than we realized. So I think for now, it's probably right to say that climate change isn't directly going to undermine the US financial system in the near future. But we know that it's changing, and we know that it's changing very significantly. And that's why it's a really important potential emerging threat to monitor. Well, I think that uh, the uh, term emerging is uh, operative, emerging. Uh, my hope is that we don't wait until it becomes uh, an apparent threat, that it's right before our eyes, because I'm not sure what you do about a threat that is already upon you. Do you, do you have the same advantage that you have if you start to deal with it uh, as it emerges? Uh, your response, Mr. Garrity? Certainly you don't. I think one of the reasons why it's important for the um, Financial Stability Oversight Council to think about this, and I'll, I'll give a similar example. The FSOC was actually the first financial stability body globally to highlight cybersecurity as a threat. Before that, everyone was thinking about the issues that had come of the crisis. They hadn't thought about cyber. And now people recognize that cyber is absolutely one of the top threats. So I think to your point, Mr. Green, this is exactly why we need to start identifying these threats for analysis before um, the, the risk to our financial system may be readily apparent. And um, just uh, to edify, not to contend that this is a part of the, 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 the nexus of the threat to the greater financial market, but insurance companies should have realized that it's a threat uh, we have insurance companies that are bailing out along the Gulf Coast and in California too, but these threats don't occur instantaneously. They emerge, and as such, we have to be prepared to deal with them at some point in the future, and what better time to start than now? Uh, to my other friends who are on the panel, I said that I would give you an opportunity to respond, so if you'll kindly do so in writing, I would greatly appreciate it and look forward to reading your commentary. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the time. I yield back. Gentleman yields back, the uh, Chairman of the House Administration Committee, the crafter of the new 118th Congress pin that everybody has received today. Mr. Stahl of Wisconsin, recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. The focus of today's hearing is on FSOC, Financial Stability Oversight Council. Uh, but we see a general aversion to digital assets innovation across most regulators in Washington right now. The best way to support jobs, innovation, consumer protection is to put in place clear, fair, and transparent rules of the road. It's exactly actually what this committee worked on to do in the past this past summer uh, by passing bipartisan legislation and establishing frameworks for stable coins in digital asset markets. Uh, if we fail to do this, we'll continue to allow regulators to stifle innovation uh, and we'll see more businesses migrate overseas. Um, let me come to you, Mr. Halsey, if I can. In your testimony, you explained that the proposed changes to uh, FSOC's designation process could actually uh, contribute to great systemic risk. Can you describe why you think FSOC's 2023 guidance would have that effect 
And can you explain why the 2019 framework is a more appropriate process? Thank you for the question. So if we have more non-bank financial companies that are afraid to innovate, as you point out, due to fear of designation, you will have less competition within our financial system. We need healthy competition between banks and non-banks. As you drive homogeneity within our system by regulating all bank or non-banks as banks, you're going to reduce that, not just innovation, but competition. And as you have more non-banks designated as systemically important and regulated as banks, you're gonna drive that homogeneity. And so, you know, this is kind of where we kind of start to see some of these market distortions that the 2023 guidance would enable and should instead be focused on the 2019 So, so let, me, let me dig into this a little bit. So you have CFPB Director Chopra, who's called the cost-benefit analysis in the context of CIFI designation and, and unnecessary stricture. Uh, can you explain why it's important, especially in this context, to consider the trade-offs uh, associated with the designation? Yeah, so absolutely. The cost-benefit analysis and considering the trade-offs between designation and not designating, I think is important for any sort of policy decision, supervisory, regulatory, or otherwise. There are clearly trade-offs to imposing bank-like regulations. Thank you. So let me, I'm gonna come to you, Mr. Kubiak, if I can. I wanna stay on the topic of trade-offs and weighing the costs and benefits. And so as you know, uh, MetLife prevailed in its case when a U.S. District Court judge uh, for the District of Columbia overturned its designation. Uh, in that opinion, the judge stated that FSOC focused exclusively on presumed benefits of its designation and ignored attendant costs. Under this new guidance, guidance is FSOC able to revert to its prior approach, which led to the unreasonable designation? Yes, until it's challenged in court uh, successfully. Uh, the court uh, in the MetLife case cited a Supreme Court ruling that said that a favorable cost-benefit analysis was mandatory uh, before a regulator could apply new regulations. So uh, you need a firm with deep pockets and the, uh, the willingness to, uh, to litigate against the government. Uh, MetLife was, was, was the only one that's been willing to do that so far, and I'm, I'm sure for that firm it was costly. Thanks. Let me, I'm going to shift gears and come to you, Mr. Kim, if I can. In my opening comments, I talked a little bit about kind of the, the international aspect as it relates to digital assets more broadly. Can you comment on, on how U.S. Regulatory, regulatory approaches are impacting the international competitiveness in digital asset innovation? Um, thank you for your question. So I know I sound like a broken record today, but it's about clarity, consistency, and cohesion. Uh, and why, why I mentioned that is because in other jurisdictions, they are developing or are about to develop or implement uh, different regulatory frameworks. Uh, what we need to do here in the United States is establish that comprehensive federal framework as well. And how do you analyze the framework that then was passed from this committee this previous summer in a bipartisan manner? It definitely addresses that, Congressman. Fit, both FIT21 and the Clarity for Payment Stable Coins Act would address regulatory gaps, further mitigate risks, provide clarity and certainty for our industry, as well as uh, increase and implement robust consumer investment protection standards, and it would increase competition as a result of that. And would that bring people back on shore, or would it develop more operations here, or a combination of the both? I think it would be both, Congressman. I think, again, it, it would provide clarity and certainty for the industry to know that they know these are the rules of the road that they need to comply with to build their operations here, keep innovation here in the United States, and not seek jurisdictions elsewhere uh, as a result. Thank you very much. I appreciate you all being here. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Gentleman yields back. Mr. Timmons of South Carolina, recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The latest developments regarding the Financial Stability Oversight Council's uh, 
represents yet another layer of government redundancy in the financial sector. I'm concerned that the FSOC's proposed changes to its designation process for non-bank financial institutions and the Council's hostile posture towards digital asset and financial technology firms will have an overwhelmingly negative impact on innovation in the United States and also reduce the U.S. economy's competitiveness in the global economy going forward. Now, Mr. Kim, is it possible that FSOC's suggestion that it will designate a non-bank financial company, specifically a digital asset firm, for Federal Reserve supervision and prudential standards result in digital asset firms leaving the U.S. for other jurisdictions? Um, thank you for the question, Congressman. Uh, the FSOC's designation process creates what I would describe as an overhang of regulatory uncertainty. Again, it doesn't provide the clarity and certainty for the digital asset firms. Uh, in the most recent guidance, um, it moving away from an activities-based approach to an entity-based approach without providing quantitative metrics and thresholds as to when an entity uh, could be potentially systemic adds to the uh, lack of clarity and certainty for the market. And this uncertainty would likely cause them to consider going offshore? Uh, yes, again, it's, it's about certainty and clarity and this designation process uh, could, could lead to uh, companies uh, going elsewhere to these other jurisdictions that I mentioned. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Hulse, last April, CFPB Director Chopra spoke in favor of the new guidance, essentially, essentially stating that the uh, lack of systemically important designated entities demonstrates FSOC uh, ineffectiveness. Is this the proper way to measure success? I couldn't disagree with that statement more. I think the appropriate measure of success is FSOC working, be an activities-based approach to address systemic risks in the market based on activities based on products, and in the event they believe that there is risk concentrated at one individual entity, working with that entity to give it the opportunity to de-risk before subjecting it to bank-like capital requirements. This is not the end game. This is kind of the last resort tool that FSOC should be considering. Thank you for that. In your testimony, you explained that the proposed changes to its designation process could actually contribute to greater systemic risk. Can you describe why you think FSOC's 2023 guidance would have this effect, and can you explain why the 2019 framework is the more appropriate process? So again, Congressman Style gave me a similar question, is if you have more non-banks that are regulated like banks and subject to a very similar, if not identical, regulatory framework, it'll drive homogeneity within the financial system. We need financial institutions of different structures and strengths in order to drive competition. All the financial institutions look the same. They'll be subject to very similar risks. And when you have one of these events that we're talking about today that potentially cause the risk of threat of stability to the U.S. financial system, you'll have all of these same companies who are subject to those same risks. Thank you for that. My friend from Wisconsin often takes my questions, so yeah, it's <laughs> not a surprise. Uh, Mr. Dinwoody, in your testimony, you mentioned that coordination and communication between the FSOC members are critical to the council fulfilling its mission. Can you describe how FSOC may better facilitate coordination and communication between FSOC members? So just to, just to underscore, I just think that's such an essential point in our multi-agency system. For it to work, there has to be day-to-day -day coordination amongst regulators, both looking in between seams at regulatory issues, finding gaps, and working closely with Congress. Um, from my experience uh, uh, as the FSOC deputy from the SEC, the coordination was actually quite excellent um, in terms of uh, biweekly meetings, uh, the staff of the SEC working closely with other agency staff on working group issues. So broadly, coordination, 
cooperation essential. My experience in the government, it was working pretty well. I obviously don't have visibility into what's going on right now. Thank you for that. By asserting or even implying its regulatory authority over these developing technologies and categorizing them as likely to become systemically important, FSOC not only risks disrupting market dynamics, but also front runs the effort, efforts of Congress to craft, craft legislation around these issues. Considering the significant expansion of services offered by non-bank financial institutions, such as fintech companies, and the previous approaches of certain FSOC members towards these entities, there's a potential threat that FSOC could stifle innovation under the pretext of addressing systemic risk. Uh, this approach will likely lead to the relocation of emerging industries to foreign markets, which would threaten U.S. national security and supremacy of the U.S. economy overall. The U.S. government needs to carefully craft a regulatory framework to mitigate risk, protect the American people, but most importantly, maintain the U.S. economy's competitiveness in the global economy. And uh, with that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank the gentleman. The gentleman yields back. Gentleman from Nebraska, Mr. Flood, is recognized for five minutes. Mr. Chair, with your permission, I'll waive this opportunity, allow the gentlewoman from Indiana uh, the opportunity to ask her questions, and I will go after her. Very good. Uh, gentlewoman, gentlewoman from Indiana is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Flood. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to Ranking Member Lynch. Thank you to the witnesses for providing testimony coming here to speak with us today. Digital assets and payment stablecoins have the potential to bring enormous investment, opportunity, and growth uh, to communities across the United States, including in rural communities like mine in southern Indiana. Under the Biden administration, however, we've seen an attack uh, again and again on this new and innovative field. The Financial Stability Oversight Council, or FSOC, was established in the aftermath of the 2008 and 9 recession to determine and address big systemic risks in our financial system. Under this administration, however, FSOC has been used as another tool to push innovation overseas and prevent Americans from engaging in this growing industry. Mr. Holes, FSOC's 2023 annual report emphasizes that the Council remains prepared to act to address risks related to stablecoins in the event comprehensive legislation is not enacted by Congress. This statement suggests that FSOC retains the authority right now to take action. In your view, is this overreach by FSOC, and would this lead to any viable regulatory process? So FSOC does maintain significant authority right now under the statute, and has provided itself more significant leeway to act based on the updates in its November 2023 guidance. What I'd like to emphasize, though, is the action it would take would not necessarily be, and would likely be far from the carefully tailored approach that has been considered by this committee and by the House Agriculture Committee. Subjecting digital assets, payment stable coins, or, or addressing some of the questions relates to market structure regulation is not necessarily the purview of the Federal Reserve Board, doesn't necessarily retain the expertise to deal with these questions, nor the appropriate regulatory tools. I want to make sure we're, we're not conflating systemic risk regulation with some of the other, I think, very relevant regulatory questions, such as consumer protection and money laundering mm -hmm. that are part of the conversations in the committee today. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Dinwoody, in FSOC's 2023 annual report, the Council explained that its new guidance and analytic framework would, quote, enable the Council to more nimbly respond to the evolving landscape. Do you agree with this assertion by FSOC? Well, thank you for asking that. It's an, it's an interesting question. Um, in terms of, on the one hand, in activities-based approaches, which what I think is the better approach, 
working with the primary regulator or Congress, enacting legislation or a rule to address a perceived issue. On the other hand, the designation takes a year and a half to make the designation when you, when you go through the process. And then as we saw in the past, for good reason not to blame the Federal Reserve, it took them two years to develop the applicable standards. Again, it was an, an industry they were learning about, they were put on the spot. So you're looking at three, three and a half years on the designation authority to affect the change. As we've seen recently, regulation can be put into place really quickly. Mm -hmm. It all depends on the regulator and or Congress. Thank you. Uh, you also note in your testimony that one of your concerns with the non-bank SIFI designation framework is that the Federal Reserve in many cases does not have the relevant expertise to supervise any given company. Can you just expand on that concern? So it's no slight against the Federal Reserve. They have a focus and you can actually put yourself in their shoes. Oh great, I'm put on the spot. Um, this company has just been deemed significant. Um, I know nothing about this industry and now I'm taken away from my day job, monetary policy, the banking system, pretty important things and I'm putting together on the fly prudential standards to apply to this industry I know nothing about. Yeah, and thank you, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I've noted before that FSOC spent a great deal of time looking at systemic or climate risk versus systemic risk in the lead up to the bank failures and felt like they were taking their eye off the ball. I think this is a similar circumstance in terms of what they're trying to engage in. I find it concerning that not only are they overstepping their boundaries when it comes to digital asset regulation, but its component agencies also lack the expertise necessary to do that supervision. As we in Congress continue to work to establish a clear regulatory framework for digital assets and stable coins here in the United States, we also need this administration and government bureaucrats to stop putting unnecessary hurdles in our way and uh, stop overstepping their authority. It does nothing to provide the clarity that this industry needs and hurts innovators and consumers alike. And with that, uh, thank you for your testimony. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Gentlewoman yields back. The gentleman from Nebraska is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. In FSOC's 2020 annual report, it stated, and I quote, the council recommends that federal and state regulators continue to support responsible innovation by examining the benefits of and potential risks to the financial system posed by new and emerging uses of digital assets and distributed ledger technologies, end quote. Mr. Hulse, this is a noticeably different tone than the 2023 annual report, where FSOC threatens to act itself. In your view, why did FSOC change its approach? I agree it is a shift in tone. Um, I am not, I can't speak for FSOC and I'm not sure why they would have shifted their approach here, but it's not clear to me what market developments or increases in systemic risk would have motivated that shift in tone. You know, there are certainly gaps related to potentially consumer protection or again, or anti-money laundering that are being worked on by this committee to provide clarity for the regulation of digital assets. But those gaps in you know, those types of regulations in of themselves do not necessarily mean that there's systemic risk. You know, risk and systemic risk are very different standards. The FSOC 2023 annual report and previous reports from the executive order highlight potential risks associated with digital assets and related activities 
To help mitigate these risks and provide certainty to digital, digital asset entities, the Financial Services Committee, as we've talked about today, has passed digital asset legislation out of committee on a bipartisan basis. Mr. Hulse, in your view, why is the legislation needed from Congress on this issue? For at least two different reasons. One, as I've mentioned, legislation from Congress will provide a much more clearly crafted approach that is designed to address the specific risks of the digital asset marketplace, much more carefully tailored than any sort of regulation the Federal Reserve Board might come up with. Again, the Federal Reserve Board just isn't necessarily equipped to answer these types of questions, especially as it relates to things like you know, the, the spot market for digital assets that are not securities. Um, also important, too, for Congress to act is it'll provide much more stability in terms of understanding the regulatory structure for digital assets. You know, outside even just digital assets or you know, financial regulation, one thing the business community finds very frustrating is when there is a new administration that the rules of the roads change dramatically. And so when Congress acts, especially in a bipartisan manner, to set rules of the road or at least a framework for the rules of the road that it will stand the test of time, that's what drives investment, that's what drives innovation, and that's what will make the U.S. market more competitive. And I would argue that that's what's made our, the financial services system in the United States so attractive worldwide is that we are stable. And this instability, I think, breeds trouble for American innovation. I'd like to just briefly reiterate what I've been saying on this committee repeatedly over the last year. We have a regulatory framework ready to go that would address many of the concerns around the digital assets uh, in, the, in the financial ecosystem. We have a plan that strikes the correct balance between investor protection and ensuring we don't stamp out, uh, stomp or stamp out innovation and the Biden administration regulators should take that plan seriously. Next, I'd like to switch gears to artificial intelligence. Uh, Mr. Dinwoody, you mentioned in your testimony that artificial intelligence was categorized by FSOC as, emerging, as an emerging vulnerability in part because of, quote, safety and soundness risks like cyber and model risks. However, the report further states that, with, that quote, without proper design, testing, and controls, AI can lead to desperate outcomes which may cause direct consumer harm and or raise consumer compliance risks, end quote. In your view, are potential disparate outcomes and consumer compliant risks associated with AI relevant to FSOC's mandates? It's an important issue that Congress and regulatory authorities should be thinking about, no doubt. It's unclear to me how that fits within financial stability or FSOC's remit. And so I do, I, you know, I don't, I, I included it in my testimony. I don't want to make too big of a thing of it. It could have been dicta in the testimony, but I wanted to use an example. I might, I might stop you there yep. just because I'm running out of time. I'd like to close quickly by addressing something that was raised earlier in this hearing. I believe that AI raises some potential risks for our broader economy that should be discussed. However, I am very hesitant to provide, quote unquote, undiluted power to a regulator in any circumstance. In Congress, we need to make sure we protect some of our own authority when it comes to addressing problems that may emerge in the economy of the future. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I yield back. Gentleman from Nebraska yields back. I want to thank all of our witnesses. It's been a very informative panel. We're a great, great panel. We're grateful for your testimony today. Without objection, all members will have five legislative days within which to submit additional written questions for the witnesses to the chair, which will be forwarded to the witness for their response. I ask our witnesses to please be 
respond as promptly as possible. This hearing is adjourned.